Hi all, you're listening to At The Bean, a medical education podcast where we discuss high-yield oncology with a focus in radiation oncology. We are Trudy and Josh, and thank you for listening. So welcome everyone to another episode of At The Beam. Today we have a very special guest with us. Um, it's Her name is Rachel Shanker. She's a PGY4 at Duke University. And we all met on the interview trail, I think, originally. So Rachel, welcome to our podcast. We're so happy you're here with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm total fangirling because I listen to you guys every week. And <laughs> it's really fun to be a part of this. Oh, you're sweet. Thank you. Um, so let's start off by, you know, kind of just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, what are your research interests and where do you see yourself in the future? <laughs> yeah. So I'm originally from Long Island, New York, but I've been in North Carolina pretty much since undergrad. Um, so I'm a PGY4 at Duke. I'm currently on my research year and I've been able to investigate a variety of different uh, projects. So I have an interest in um, HPV subtype and oral pharynx cancer, also have an interest in brachytherapy and GYN, just love doing procedures. And then um, some research I've developed over the last year and working with some other residents across the country is looking at the environmental impact of uh, radiation therapy and cancer care. Um, So that's my general interest right now. it's crazy that we're almost going to be fives. We all met as fourth oh, year yeah. medical students. That's right. Which I think we interviewed pretty much every place <laughs> together, didn't we? We sure did. And I remember just meeting both of you along the trail. And um, it's just so, it's really awesome to see how far we've come and just to blossom into these functioning radiation oncologists. <laughs> and I'm just so proud of everyone. Functioning for you. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the same. I'm like, mm. wait, so uh, your paper, can you tell us a little bit about the, the impact of our specialty and our field on the environment? I'm so curious. Yeah, sure. So this is a really new and emerging field. And like I said, there's a, a bunch of people um, who are starting to work on this, including residents across the the country, and we're collaborating a bit. So stay tuned. Um, but I started thinking about this a couple of years ago, and I was with um, one of my attendings, uh, Jen Zuccino, and we, I, I was thinking like, I wonder how much energy this is all really using. And my partner actually works in the environmental space and clean energy and carbon capture. So I started thinking about it in the healthcare world. And um, we got together with some folks from the Nicholas School of Environment at Duke who have this interest also in looking at the healthcare field and um, the environmental impact. And what we're able to do is get a pretty good estimate about what the energy usage is for um, some of the most common cancers that we treat in the U.S. And um, essentially what we found and reported in our paper a few months ago is that the linear accelerator actually um, uses the most energy when it's in a standby mode, and that's when it uses the most energy per day. Um, so really what the paper is just trying to show is just a introduction to all of this and somewhere to hang your hat on and hoping to move forward with some other um, ideas. So oh, yeah. that's great. I love that. It definitely seems like a, 
a topic that's really gaining traction and um, very relevant in today's society. So that's great. Uh, what do you like to do outside of work? Yeah, so loves to spend time outside. Um, we have a very active golden retriever, so she requires a lot of fetch every day. <laughs> um, any kind of hiking, North Carolina is great for all of that. Um, and then most recently, trying my best on StubHub to find any reasonable Taylor Swift ticket that is not behind the stage. Um, <laughs> go anywhere, but when's yeah. the concert? So I honestly have been looking at literally every city in the U.S. and oh, trying really? to figure out. Anything like, promising? There was actually on StubHub like a couple weeks ago, someone was selling like $2 tickets, standing room. And oh. I was like, there's no way. And I tried to get it and it was sold. So oh, I don't no. know if it was a glitch or something, but it was in like Vegas. And oh, I was like, to Vegas for this? I don't know. But, but for $2, that's worth it. <laughs> What's your favorite song from her new album? Oh, from the new album. I also really like Lavender Haze. It's really fun to just kind of jam to. But my favorite album is Speak Now. It always will be. Oh, yeah. I'm a Taylor Swift fan too. But I feel like I'm not to the degree of a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Um, Josh, do you want to go ahead and get started with the case? Yeah, yeah, Rachel, yeah, glad to have you. So uh, I think today we're going to have a uh, salmonoma case that we're going to discuss. So this is an uncommon disease and it only represents about 1% of male cancers. It is, however, the most common solid tumor in men in their teens to mid-30s. So whenever a patient presents with a testicular mass and you suspect cancer, the first branching point is to classify this as a salmonoma or a non-salmonoma. And um, many testicular cancers are mixed germ cell tumors, meaning that they have both seminoma and non-seminoma cells. Um, and only tumors that have a 100% seminoma cells are considered seminomas, while, as mentioned earlier, the non-seminomas will contain different cell types, um, including things like choroid carcinomas, teratomas, yolk sac carcinomas, and embryonal tumors. So it's important to distinguish exactly which pathologic subtype that you're treating because management options will be different. So Rachel, what's an easy first step to characterize a seminoma? Sure. So alpha fetal protein levels will be normal in seminomas. So if it's elevated, that would be suggestive of a non-seminomatous tumor. All right. So uh, let's start with our case. So we have a 30-year-old white male that presents to your clinic. Uh, he has a painless testicular mass. Uh, what are going to be your first steps? Sure. As always, I would start with a detailed um, history and physical, focusing on preceding testicular trauma, history of crypt orchidism, pelvic or abdominal surgeries, horseshoe kidney, and or IBD. The greatest risk factor for seminoma is a history of crypt orchidism and is one you should focus on. Recall that cryptorchidism is when one or both testicles fail to descend from the abdomen into the scrotum at birth. The testicle can be found anywhere in the path of descent from the retroperitoneum to the inguinal ring. The higher the testicle is stuck, so to say, the greatest the risk of testicular cancer. Most cryptorchid testicles will spontaneously drop by three months of age, but beyond this, an orchiopexy is required. Keep in mind that some patients may report a history of retractile testes where the testicles had descended at one point, but retracted at a young age. 
which is far more common than crypt orchidism, but may be mistaken for it on a recorded history. These cases typically do not increase testicular cancer risk. All right, that's great. So there's a one chromosomal abnormality that's associated with testicular germ cell tumors, which is two copies of the short arm on chromosome 12, which is called a 12P isochromosome. Uh, when a patient presents with a testicular mass, what is your differential diagnosis? So tumor, torsion, epididymitis, and the seals. So hydrocele, varicocele, and spermatocele. In patients with testicular cancer, the most common presentation is a painless testicular mass. Less than half of patients experience pain. Okay. So our patient recalls his mom said that he had testicular surgery as a baby. He has no other significant past medical history. And then on your exam, his right testicle is notably larger than the left, and there is a palpable mass. So what are your next steps? I would like to get a transcrotal ultrasound and check tumor markers that are very specific to testicular cancers. These would be AFP, beta-HCG, and LDH. All right, great. So your ultrasound reveals a well-circumscribed, lobulated, heterogeneously hypoechoic mass with internal vascularity on your Doppler ultrasound. All tumor markers, including AFP, beta-HCG, and your uh, LDH are normal. Is there anything you'd like to specifically counsel him on? We need to discuss fertility planning. If he would like to preserve fertility, sperm banking should be pursued before surgery. All right, great. So our patient gets a radical inguinal orchiectomy, and then pathology reveals a pure seminoma that's invading into the spermatic cord soft tissue with LVI. So Rachel, uh, do you think you can go over our uh, pathologic T staging for us? Sure. So a pathologic T0 is no tamer. Pathologic TIS is a germ cell neoplasia in situ. Uh, PT1, tumor confined to the testes without LVI. PT2, tumor confined to the testes, but there is LVI or tumor invading hyalur soft tissue, epididymis, or the visceral layer of the tunica albiginia. PT3, tumor invades the spermatic cord soft tissue. PT4, tumor invades the scrotum. So this patient's tumor was invading the spermatic cord, so he is a PT3. So uh, where do you want to go from here? So now that we have a pathologic diagnosis of testicular cancer, we need to complete his post-diagnostic workup, which would include a CT abdomen pelvis, chest x-ray, and repeat tumor markers, which again are AFP, beta-HCG, and LDH. All right. That's excellent. Um, so from a trainee's point of view, it feels strange to be getting staging scans after an orchiectomy, which would seem like a definitive surgical procedure. However, if you remember in testicular cancer, we do not biopsy due to a risk of seeding. So our patient's chest x-ray is normal, but a CT abdomen pelvis showed two paracaval lymph nodes uh, measuring 1.2 and 1.5 cm. So Rachel, do you mind going over nodal staging for us as well as lymphatic drainage patterns? Sure. So clinical N1 is single or multiple lymph nodes less than or equal to two centimeters. 
clinical and two single or multiple lymph nodes between two to five centimeters and clinical and three or any lymph nodes greater than five centimeters. In terms of lymphatic drainage from the testicle, pelvic and inguinal lymph nodes are rare. Instead, the lymph nodes most likely to be involved are more superior and differ based on which side the testicular cancer is located. On the left, nodal metastases are more likely to reside in the PA chain. This is because the left testicular vein drains into the left renal, which then goes to the periaortic lymph nodes. On the right, nodal metastases are more likely to go to the paracaval and interaortocaval lymph nodes because the right testicular vein directly drains into the IVC. This is important to remember because it informs our RT fields. Because this patient's paracaval lymph nodes were all less than two centimeters, his stage is clinical N1. And uh, what else does he need since he was found to have lymph node metastasis? I would also get a CT of the chest now just to confirm there is no distant metastatic disease. Yeah, so uh, getting a CT of the chest if nodal mets are present is important. So our CT chest is negative. His final stage is a pathologic T3, clinical N1, clinical M0. So it's important to note that serum markers play an important role in staging, which we won't get into great detail today. We can check this out on the NCCN guidelines, which we'll have linked in our show notes. His uh, repeat markers were normal, as they were uh, preoperatively. And generally speaking, patients without nodal or distant METs are stage one. And patients with nodal METs will fall into stage two. And then patients with metastatic disease are stage three. Now, unusual to most sites, there's going to be no stage four disease. So a key distinction, however, for us as radonks to understand is the difference between 2A and 2B. So Rachel, what's the difference there? Sure. So let's assume moving forward that there's no evidence of distant metastatic disease so if you're a clinical N1, again, that means all your lymph nodes are less than 2CM, then you are a stage 2A. If you are a clinical N2, which means your lymph nodes are 2 to 5 centimeters, then the patient is a 2B. For stage 2A, there are two treatment options. One is RT to the PA and ipsilateral iliac lymph nodes, or two, first-line BEP chemotherapy, which is a toposide, cisplatin, and bleomycin, or EP, atoposide cisplatin chemotherapy. For patients with 2B disease, RT is also an option, but must be careful to when recommending RT that the patient doesn't have uh, bulky disease. Since remember, these patients can have lymph nodes anywhere ranging in size from two to five centimeters. For a 2B, we typically like the lymph nodes to be less than or equal to three centimeters if pursuing RT, which will be considered, quote, non-bulky. And a quick word on stage 2C disease. Uh, these patients will have lymph nodes that are greater than 5CM in size, and they should receive chemotherapy. So radiotherapy is not an option here. So this patient, again, is a stage 2A, which means we can offer radiotherapy or chemotherapy. And let's spend some time talking about the uh, radiotherapy field design and targets. So in patients with stage two disease, we first treat with a modified dog-leg field, which means we want to cover the ipsilateral common, external, and proximal internal iliacs to the top of the acetabulum. We design our RT fields using an APPA technique. And in a patient with uh, stage 2A disease, 
the dog-like field dose is going to be 20 gray in 10 fractions. The second part of uh, the radiotherapy would be the cone down, still using this APPA technique to the gross disease. And in our patient, this would be the uh, less than 2 cm in size paracaval lymph nodes. The boost dose for 2A disease is to 30 gray. Uh, for stage 2B, this would be 36 gray. So, Rachel, how are we going to set up these fields for a modified dog leg? Sure. So the superior border will be at T10-11. Inferior is the top of the acetabulum. Medial border is line between the tip of the contralateral transverse process of L5 to medial border of the obturator foramen. Laterally, line between the ipsilateral transverse process of L5 to the superolateral border of the acetabulum. That's awesome. Yeah, so uh, what's the margin you're going to use for your GTV boost? I would add a uniform 2CM margin from the GTV to the block edge for the cone down fields. All right, great. So I, I just want to summarize this since it's a unique indication for APPA. Um, a modified dog leg is often the buzzword that you'll hear. So for our patients, we're going to first treat the ipsilateral common, external, and proximal internal iliac lymph nodes with the APPA technique to 20 gray in 10 fractions. And because he has stage 2A disease, meaning his lymph nodes are all less than 2CM in size, he's going to receive a cone down boost of the gross nodes to 30 gray. Now, uh, Rachel, what are some of the side effects that this patient can expect? So we can counsel the patient on uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, fatigue, and a risk of secondary cancers in the future. The risk of a secondary cancer persists decades beyond treatment and include a higher risk of colon, bladder, pancreas, and stomach cancer. The risk is present even if the patient receives adjuvant chemotherapy instead of RT. And what's going to be your follow-up plan for this patient after he completes treatment? In the first year, HMP every three months with restaging CT abdomen pelvis at three months and nine to 12 months, and chest x-ray at six months. In the second year, HMP can be lengthened to every six months with chest x-ray and annual CT abdomen pelvis. In the third year, they'll just need HMP every six months in an annual scan. Imaging is not indicated after the third year unless signs of clinical recurrence. That's great. Yeah. So um, let's briefly talk about management for stage one seminoma, which means after the patient gets his orchiectomy. On uh, post-diagnosis workup, there's no evidence of nodal or distant disease. So Rachel, what's the rationale for observation of these cases and what's strongly preferred um, as per NCCN guidelines? There is robust retrospective data to support the risk of relapse after orchiectomy alone for stage one disease. Um, is small, and if relapse were to occur, it most often occurs within the first two years. And salvage therapy is oftentimes successful with 15-year overall survival of over 90% after relapse and salvage. So if your patient is uh, compliant and follows routine surveillance guidelines, surveillance is a better option than subjecting the patient to the acute and late toxicities of uh, chemotherapy or radiation. Uh, which are also adjuvant treatment options on NCCN. Now, if for whatever reason uh, the patient receives adjuvant RT for a stage one seminoma, what would the fields look like and what is their dose? 
Sure. For stage one disease, I would prescribe 20 gray in 10 fractions. Again, would plan with APPA technique. The field would include the paraaortics alone, which is known as the, quote, landing zone, since 90% of nodal relapses occur in the PA lymph nodes. The superior border is at T1011, inferior at L5, and the width traditionally spans 10 cm, encompassing the transverse processes of the vertebrae. Depending on individual anatomy, sometimes the patient's kidneys need to be blocked because they're too medial. Oh, yeah. Great, great point about the kidneys. Uh, what's our dose constraint there? Sure. Each kidney uh, would have a D50% of less or equal to 8 gray. Now, what if uh, the patient had prior pelvic surgery? Why do we care about that? So this is important because prior pelvic or scrotal history could mean that the lymphatic drainage of the testes has been altered. Thus, the RT field should be more broad to include the ipsilateral iliac and inguinal lymph nodes, including the surgical scar. That's wonderful. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, thanks for working through this case of seminoma with us. And we also want to thank Dr. Robert Lee of Duke University for his review of the script. You can find the show notes on atthebeam.com. Uh, be well, and remember to always trust but verify. <laughs>